Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exist to Equip the Church to be hearers and doers of the Word. My name's Tim. And my name's Marshall. What's up, Marshall? Uh, not much. Not a whole lot. I, I'm enjoying the uh, upgrades to our podcasting room that have recently occurred. Yeah, it's a very different podcasting kind of day. It is. For one, we never listen to the intro when we record. We just... We don't. Alex staples it on at the end. Yeah. That time we listened to it. Yeah. I haven't heard it in a long time. <laughs> I still like it. Do you do you not listen back to the episodes after they're No, I don't. Up? Oh really? I don't. I know. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's reason to look at a intro like that and be like, Yeah, you know what, we should it's three years old, we should update it. I still like it. It's timeless. Is it? I I, I like it. I'm gonna say it's timeless. Sure. <laughs> I don't listen back to it. So maybe everyone else is like, All right, it's gotten old and I'm like, Hey, I haven't heard that in two years. <laughs> it's That's also great. different because the room Mm-hmm. We have had summer interns move in. That's right to our room, mm-hmm. and now it's covered with flowers and yeah. succulents. Yeah, and pink. Yep, there's some and pink all, things in here, and all because of Sam Crerar. <laughs> <laughs> yep, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Addison Summers. And Addison, yeah. This, this, whatever this. It's like it's not a post. It's like a tap. It's like a 21st century tapestry. Yeah, yeah. Like a printed mountain scene. mountain scene on a sheet. It's nice. It's very college dorm in here. It is very college dorm in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. It's like college dorm meets storage closet. Man, check out this keyboard. I know that's like the coolest keyboard I've ever seen. Shout out to Addison Summers keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody cares about this. Nobody can see it. But let's, I can see it. It's let's challenge ourselves to talk about something that people might care about. Okay. All right. We're going to get into I mean, we might get to the end of the episode and people are like, hey, you know what? It's been quite a while since you've talked about anything we cared about. So what makes this episode different? <laughs> it's like it's like one of those like HGTV interior decorating shows, except there's no visual. It's just audio. <laughs> 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 Welcome the, to the interior decorating podcast, the, the most <laughs> useless podcast in the world. The big reveal. <laughs> Oh man! Ooh, okay, well, Thomas it, Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas. Well, wait. We got to do the thing. I got to do the thing where do the I, thing. Okay, do the thing. Okay, do the thing. So we're gonna be covering. Here comes the thing. We're covering the tail end of the 13th century. We didn't get to Thomas Aquinas last week because there was just too much going on. Um, and we're gonna get into the 14th century, so the 1300s, um, today. And so some some events. Some events, Tim. Mm-hmm. I hope people like this. I don't know. I like this. This is fun for me. Uh, William Wallace, aka Braveheart. Oh yeah. As portrayed by Mel Gibson, who was about a foot too short for that role, but that's okay. He did a good job, nonetheless. It's, it's that movie is just classic. It's it's just the yeah yeah. Uh, so he defeats the English at Stirling Bridge in 1297. So just before the year 1300. And then from 1309 to 1377, and we'll talk about this a bit in the episode, but we have what's called the Avignon Papacy. So there is a line of popes that transfers the seat of power from Rome to France. Um, It seems like the kind of thing the Bishop of Rome would do. Yeah, sure. Uh, 1315 to 1317, there is a famine that just devastates Europe, kills millions of people. 1321, Dante's Divine Comedy is written. 
I've taught that book a couple of times. Really? Yeah, it's great. I've never I've I've only picked up snippets of it. I've never actually like went through it. Yeah, so f- there was a there was a short stint. Let me th- let me do the math. 2 4 5 years of my life where I was teaching history. Okay. And one of the ways that I liked to teach history was cause and effect mm. kind of a thing. Um and so part of that was the cause of particular works leading to the effect of the end of the Dark Ages and those kinds of things. And I thought Divine Comedy was a particularly interesting piece that kind of showed in real time people realizing they were in the Dark Ages. Hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. Um, Yeah, because it's around this time, actually, there's a poet... Petrarch, and he actually begins using the term Dark Ages to describe mm-hmm. the last 900 years. Because right. they were seeing themselves as at, at kind of like the tail end of that. Right. They're like, we're just get, now getting back to where we were before. Um, yeah, the, the first step in fixing a problem is acknowledging that you have a problem. Yeah. And that's kind of what that is. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Uh, in 1337, the Hundred Year War which lasted actually a lot longer than 100 years, uh, begins between England and France, uh, essentially just because the English crown owned some lands in France and technically owed fealty to the French kings for those lands, but were also their rival because they had their own kingdom. It just made things really awkward. And what do you do when things are awkward? Start a war. Yeah. That lasts generations. Um, So that's going on. So that's, that's going on in the background of like all of this. Like all that we're going to be talking about is is happening uh, against the backdrop of that. Um, yeah, and I think that's important to remember in history too, mm-hmm. because a lot of times we want it to be simpler than it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we forget that everyone's not just sitting around while this one guy does his thing, and then we move on to the next guy who's going to do a thing. Mm-hmm. There's so much overlap in real time life going on um, that has to be considered but can't always be discussed in depth. No. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty of stuff on the Hundred Years' War if you're interested in going deeper, but suffice it to say, it's it's happening. Um, so we're going to actually begin the podcast with a bit of almost like an addendum from last week's episode because we just simply didn't have the time to get into it. But we want to talk about Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas is one of these characters, um, very, very influential in the philosophical world. Mm-hmm. Uh, not even just within the context of Christian philosophy, but Aquinas is taught in secular universities. Right. He, like there is, there is, he's taught in, in the types of classes that, you know, I would take when I was at the university of Ottawa because he was that influential. And so there's a, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, but, we have to talk about him because... Yeah. And, and it's not an uncommon thing. I mean, Kierkegaard later yep. is going to be yep. very similar in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and others that have gone on before him. Mm-hmm. So, Thomas Aquinas, late 14th century. No. 13th oh, I'm century. sorry, 13th century. Yep. And, uh, and is, is a bit of revival of church thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I think... Yeah, go ahead. Part, partly, yeah. it's partly it's him. 
Okay. He was always like, he was destined because he was a younger son of a noble family. He was kind of destined for the right. church. He was a good student. So there's a, and, and he w- seems to have, you know, by all accounts to have been relatively bright, but there's also, he's also a bit of a product of his times. Mm-hmm. We talked about the crusades and there was an exchange of knowledge that happened with the crusades. There were ancient texts that had been sitting in libraries in Alexandria and Antioch that the, the Muslim kingdoms had been sitting on and sometimes using to some degree for themselves. Um, and now these, these things are, are coming to Europe, right? Along with Muslim philosophers, Jewish philosophers, um, the writings of Aristotle in particular make a significant comeback and, and Aquinas is a big fan of Aristotle. Um, so he becomes a monk, he grows up, he learns, um, <laughs> at one point, uh, at one point he decides that he's going to join the Dominicans and, uh, his family isn't happy about that. There's some political things between the different factions, but they kidnap him, uh, while he's on the road and he's held prisoner by his own family for a year. <laughs> that's a thing. Yeah. So with missionaries, that's a thing. Like, it's incredible what families will do to get their sons, daughters, family members off of the mission field mm-hmm. in a very similar way. Yeah. The director of my school when I was in, of my school, it belonged to me. The director of the school I was at in Buenos Aires, uh, he got a phone call from a school in his son's hometown saying that they had looked over the resume. They were very impressed and wanted to have a meeting. And he said, what resume? His son had turned it in. Wow. His son had turned in a resume on his behalf just to try to lure him back with this headmaster's position there in his hometown. Interesting. Um, Those kinds of things happen. There's a lot of missionaries with stories of parents trying to set them up with dates right before they leave because (laughs) maybe love at first sight is a thing and this calling that God has put on their life will be crushed by puppy love oh my goodness in the moment it's a thing it's yeah. it's not an ancient thing it's an it's a modern thing yeah so um his brothers uh try to dissuade him by bringing to him what i'll call a woman of the night which he declines See? and chases her out with a burning log <laughs> apparently from the fireplace <laughs> poor i mean yeah anyways um eventually his mother allows him to escape they kind of, rather than setting them free, they just kind of like let him get away because it's less shame on their family, I suppose. And he goes to Paris where he joins the university and and grows in knowledge. He's a quiet guy. Some of his peers thought he was stupid and slow because he didn't talk much, but actually far from, far from the case. Um, and he teaches. He teaches the Old Testament as an associate professor. And he kind of does his circuit through multiple schools, kind of going from city to city, doing that sort of thing. Um, he's actually called by one of the popes to be a papal theologian and to teach at one of the schools in Rome itself. So he he gains the notice of, of the established order um, as a relatively young man. But the thing that he's most remembered for is the Summa Theologica, or the Summary of Theology. That's the thing that's getting quoted most right. of the time when you are when you hear about Thomas Aquinas, is, is his essentially systematic theology, also philosophy, morality, ethics, law, 
all those kind of things. He kind of does this writing, which uh, for in his mind, anyways, he was writing to be an introduction to these subjects for mm-hmm. students. Yeah. So for those of you that don't follow along in this sort of thing with the idea of the uh, systematic theology, what is a systematic theology? It when theology gets broken down into its pieces, mm-hmm. we have biblical theology, which is to say, what does the Bible teach on the subject? We have natural theology, which says, what do we see about this in the world around us? Mm-hmm. Systematic theology takes all of the natural theologies, all of the biblical theologies, weaves them together into, it's going to sound bad to say it this way, into a box. And it puts theology in a box, Mm -hmm. acknowledging God is not within this box. Right. What what a systematic theology is trying to say is, it seems to me that these are the patterns and examples that a limitless God has chosen to use. Mm -hmm. Because he's not using everything. Mm -hmm. And so they're saying this is the process and the means and the understanding that we have available to us in its full, so best as I can tell. Right. And systematic theologies are written regularly even today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a number of them on my shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, what, that's what this is. Right. Trying to wrap up all of Scripture, all of history, all of our world into a presentable package, right. if you might say. Yeah. They are often very thick books, if not multiple volumes, and quite weedy. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. But still fascinating. Yeah. Aquinas kind of approaches this this task with an interesting format. What he does is he starts each subject with a question, um, and then potential objections or issues with that question, counterstatements. Then he actually gives his actual argument, and then responses to potential counter arguments to his mm-hmm. position it's kind of like a a dialogue he's almost writing a dialogue to express his views on things which is a neat way to kind of to teach right to say there's this question and some might say this but to them i would say that and here's where i'm at on this and some of you might be thinking this but this is how i would answer those other questions it's a neat it's kind of a neat way to teach that most of the I'd say most of the systematic theologies on your shelf and my shelf wouldn't be written that way necessarily I, I don't know confirmations and rejections uh, okay yeah are is another way to word that sure okay. so Calvin's Institutes of Calvin, Christian religion has yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know affirmations and uh, rejections um, the more modern ones would Grudem Grudem's doesn't like, I, I don't I don't remember Grudem's that well. Yeah, I shelved it and didn't come back to it that much. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Norman Geisler, I think, has the okay the the challenges against his theology. Um, yeah, I, I would say I, w- I would say it's a fifty fifty on how that's gonna go. Right, right. It might come down to the publisher mm-hmm. on that one and whether or not they want to give you that many pages. <laughs> but I but the reason it's helpful is because. Anytime you make a statement, it's it's difficult to make a statement so perfectly that it can't be refuted, mm-hmm. it, just as a wordsmith. And so doing these refutations and then answering that refutation is a way of making this statement in such a way that it is 
delivered and and understood. Yeah. Whereas if you just threw it into the prose of it all, mm-hmm. it might get missed. Yeah. And it's I think it's an effective strategy whether you're writing papers or articles or even for you and I preaching sermons to kind of head off those you might be thinking or you might be saying, but what about, right? And just actually handling those things. Yeah, Paul does it. Yeah. What yeah. then do we continue to sin so the grace may abound? By yeah. no means. Exactly. Um, after Aquinas's death, there is a process that begins to, to get him canonized as a saint. And, uh, and here's a neat thing. The devil's advocate, that expression we use, mm-hmm. that was someone who was hired by the church when they were, they were bringing forward a candidate for sainthood. Okay. The devil's advocate would try to dig up as much as they could to kind of prevent that person from being canonized. Really? Yeah. So it was like they were like the opponent to like drum up all the things they could to to disqualify them. And that's the, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of those today. Yeah, we do. <laughs> those people whose life's mission is to disqualify. <laughs> yeah. Well, called journalism it's called anyway, twitter <laughs> it's called twitter yeah there you go um no so the the biggest thing for the biggest thing for aquinas is that he doesn't have any miracles saints are supposed to have miracles so where's his miracles at that's what the devil's advocate is saying um and then one of the cardinals in the council speaks up and he says there are as many miracles as articles in the summa that's how highly regarded his his document was yeah so, but then when you Okay, so he's saying the document itself is the miracle? I guess. That's what this cardinal said anyways. Hmm. He's just one guy, but that was his take. Yeah. He he was sainted. He became a saint. There is St. Thomas Aquinas schools and churches. Right, right. And I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, if if the argument then is that divine power provided the opportunity right. to bring something about that is naturally impossible, that's what a miracle is. Sure. If those things are words, then we're talking about scripture <laughs> that ought to be canonized. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be outside the norms for the Catholic Church to, <laughs> to add a couple of books to here. To add there. a couple things or to yeah. just ascribe a certain degree of I'm authority just, to things. I'm just saying it's a bold statement. It is, is bold. It's bold. It's bold and apparently effective uh, in that case anyways. Um also in the 1300s, uh, our good friends the Knights Templar fall out of favor. And this is somewhat related to the church, his, church history because they were a religious order. Mm-hmm. They were under the authority of the Pope. They answered to no one but the Pope himself. And they ruled kind of minor kingdoms and they had this big banking network that we talked about. Um, but they were accused of secrecy and subversion. Secrecy. Mm-hmm. That usually means you're not telling me what I want to know. Yeah. Not that you're not just <laughs> writing a newsletter for yeah. everyone to read. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. And and it also says it's probably not the Pope that's upset with you. No. It was but other people. It was the king it was the, the king of France. And that is the accusation of heresy. Yes. That's where we get into last week's discussion about the Inquisitions. Mm-hmm. Right? And how these inquisitions just so quickly become a tool of accusation for anyone that I want to accuse. And and that heresy being punishable by death yeah. is, it, I can wield this against anyone. I don't have to look them in the eye when I do it. 
I can do it secretively, and they're punished until they confess. So even if they confess and are let go, best case scenario for the person wrongly accused, mm-hmm. they still got punished. Right. So I still get a little bit of something for turning in my neighbor yeah. falsely. Yeah. Uh, but to be put to death without a fair trial? Yeah. And and ostensibly based on defending the truth of God? Come on. Yeah, so th- there was the charge of heresy that was brought before them. And I actually got a bit of a quote here for the reasoning. Um, it said, when professing, the brothers, that's the Templars, were required to deny Christ, to spit on the cross, and to place three obscene kisses on the lower spine, the navel, and the mouth, and they were obliged to indulge in carnal relations with other members of the order, if requested, and finally they wore a small belt which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol which looked like a human head with a long beard. Here's the thing. No actual evidence for any of this was ever produced. These are just rumors. How do you know she's a witch? (laughs) She looks like a witch. (laughs) Does she float? Burner. Okay, so anyways, but yeah, so essentially none of it was ever produced. I mean, we we can't know for certain, but I just my own opinion is I think it's a bunch of hogwash. Yeah, I mean, you have a group of people who have been around for quite a long time. They're quite powerful. They're Mm -hmm. quite wealthy. Mm Mm-hmm. And you are the king of France. You're slowly taking everything over. Everything is slowly coming under you. But not these guys. These guys rest as this autonomous group outside of your power. Mm -hmm. And so in order to have sovereign rule, you've got to take out your enemies. Yeah, That's the way I see it. Yep, no, for sure. So by 1310... Templars are being burned at the stake in relatively significant numbers. And in 1314, the Grand Master himself is burned at the stake. And that's kind of the end of the Templars. Yeah, and I I think you can look at that and you can be a little bit curious as to how that can happen. How can an elite fighting force be taken out like that? Mm. Could be that because the Crusades have started to wane, that only 10% of the Knights Templar were actually mm-hmm. combat knights. Yeah. That probably changes even more. It becomes even more infrequent yeah. that you're bringing on soldiers and more frequent that you're bringing on businessmen. The um, other thing is they're not all in the same place. Yeah, they're they're quite spread out. Yeah, and yeah. once the church declares someone an enemy, you don't just have the French army or papal mm-hmm. forces. You have the mob. Right. Right. Who is going to take any opportunity to participate in sacking a fortress run by the Templars to, you know, maybe get some pent up aggression out, maybe even some old scores or maybe grab something, a silver candelabra on their way out. Right. So it's like you have yeah. as soon as you get that that pass from the Pope, the, the papal authority, um, it's open season essentially on these guys. Yeah. And, and it could even be. M- it could even be worse than that. I, I struggle with saying more innocent than that or worse than that. Mm. I, I think you'll see the irony in it. Um, because the Pope has already declared things like the king is under me, mm-hmm. and uh, any standing against the Pope is standing against God and his church, um, 
you can also have people who are they they need to confess sin and they need forgiveness that forgiveness has to come from the church mm. and in order to keep or to gain favor with the church you have to do their bidding right that has not been a part of the church but at this point in history is becoming a part oh, of the church certainly in leaps and bounds certainly uh and I, and i say becoming for 100 for a couple hundred years those things have been going on. We're just going to see that really spike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's how, and, and not only the bidding of the the masses, but kings and armies are going to fall to that and, and have fallen to that. That's mm-hmm. a good push for militarizing people in the Crusades and yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, yeah, so alongside this or shortly after this um, in kind of the mid-1300s, we have the Black Death. Um, a plague sweeps across Europe. They figure it probably killed about 25 million people. About a third of the population of Europe is is killed through this. And uh, the ultimate source, you know, there's still some uncertainty, but it probably came to Europe on ships as kind of international travel and trade began to increase, probably from rats, but not necessarily the rats themselves, but the fleas on the rats. And, uh, and it was transferred kind of similarly to how COVID was. Air, it's an airborne thing. So mm-hmm. you've got sneezes and coughs, and this thing is just out of control. And obviously, the degree of scientific and medical knowledge at this time, they, they don't really know how to deal right. with it. Uh, one of the main treatments, letting blood. Yeah. Which is probably not going to help all that much. It makes you wonder how how it would have been I, I think it's common to say what would it have been if the black death had come 500 years later right right where you would or 800 years later mm-hmm. in the world of modern medicine how bad would it have gotten mm-hmm. i think it'd be even more interesting to throw it 800 years back right throw it back just to the dawn of the middle ages mm-hmm. throw it back into rome I think they would have handled it better. Probably, yeah. I think that level of medicine and science would have been more interested in finding an actual cure. Yeah. Instead of making something up like it's in your blood and you just need to bleed it out. Yeah. Yeah, they would use different things too. They would use like um, cryptograms, which were these like, they would use like the the letter the first letters of certain words in prayers and they would write it on objects to like ward off the disease and that sort of thing um it was definitely seen by the majority of people as god's judgment it was punishment for sin and so society needed to repent they needed to pray they needed to give more money to the church they needed to increase in their obedience but so it did that with the majority it caused some people though to abandon the faith it caused some people, some people were had such a rough go of it that it it kind of caused them to to deny the Catholic Church. And you actually see an, a, a brief increase in people going back to the, the old pagan ways. Yeah, and I when you when you talk about that, it it gets in it gets enveloped by the church as well, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not just in, in science, people are are now going back. There's a lot of paganism brought into Christianity at this point. Yeah, now yeah. there's Christianity going back into paganism, and, and there's just going to be this mixing of the two mm-hmm. that happens quite a bit. Um, but the 13th century, this is when we start seeing people pray the rosary. Yeah, 
Yep. Right. So those kinds of things that you look at and you're like, that's very, it's very peculiar, scripturally peculiar. It's common in society, mm-hmm. a big rosary necklace. And, and even as a lifelong Protestant, I understand what it means to say those specific prayers and to work your way through the beads and those kinds of things. But I, I think given a couple of minutes of thought and to say, where on earth would a thing like that come from? It comes from this period yep. where these sort of superstitions are making their way through society rampantly mm-hmm. and and through the church as well. So yeah. so these, I mean, they, they all sort of, especially carving letters onto people's bodies to rid disease, sounds way more witchcraft than Christian medicine. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. But, but, you know, you can even pull things like amulets and trinkets, which arguably the rosary exists in at least that greater umbrella. Oh, for sure. Um, and it's, it's, it's a product of its age. Yeah, yeah. Another product of this time is something that has already begun, but is I'll briefly mention because, again, the church is, is involved in it, is the idea of chivalry. This mm. medieval kind of idea of chivalry. Just means being a gentleman opening doors, right? Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, it was a code of conduct, essentially, for the knightly class of European men. And in fact, it was in part propagated by the church. Um, it was seen initially as kind of a reformation amongst the warrior class of Europe. Um it was a means of like essentially making the lifestyle that was all about becoming a warrior and then killing other people and taking their things. It was kind of a way of like baptizing that. And yeah, to make tr- it glorious. Yeah, to make why, it sacred even. Why would it be interesting for military combatants to be glorified and sanctified mm-hmm. in the eyes of the people? <laughs> Especially if you're in the business of glory and sanctification, right? Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you can just say to people, listen, this is not barbarous warfare, mm-hmm. right? It, it is It is the Crusades again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there's a variety of different, like, qualities that were elevated. There, There was a part of it that came into, like, how women were to be treated. Yep. That is kind of the, like, how noble women were to be treated yeah that's that's <laughs> the legacy right that's the thing that's kind of left over so that's the mm-hmm. opening doors and and all those kind of things um that's where you that's where you might get the discussion where a conservative would be like well chivalry's dead and that's a problem mm-hmm. and then you might get someone who's left-leaning coming yeah. in and saying chivalry was always a problem right right they're both right in this instance they just have sure. different memories of different <laughs> portions of chivalry right <laughs> which is just how we all work these days. Um, right. <laughs> so getting back, getting back to, uh, to the church history here, we got, we got to talk about, we've talked about a number of schisms, so people might be getting bored of schisms. Another. Another, another, another great schism. Another great, yeah. How many great schisms are we going to oh, have? Oh, man, I don't even know. I mean, we've, this is probably our third great schism. <laughs> I know. <laughs> let alone schisms in general. Yeah, and, and unlike the first great schism... <laughs> And maybe similarly to the last one, it's definitely more political than doctrinal. Yeah, that that's where these schisms are getting uh, at this point. So, although I, I kind of feel like the last couple have 
Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so had deep political. So we talked. Undertones. We talked about previously about how you had two popes vying for power. Yeah. Well, Gregory the Eleventh brings the papacy back to Rome and kind of ends the schism. But the church, especially the the portions that had been allied with the pope who was outside of, um, outside of Rome, had seen themselves as they had picked up on like Babylonian exile imagery from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. They were the church in exile. Um, As we do today. Yeah. And so when they returned to Rome, though, there was this idea that, you know, Rome was too political, right? That it was just too, um, it was too embroiled in the rivalries and all the things that, that were going on between the various families. It comes with baggage. Yeah. And so, but there's concern. There's concern over the papacy and, and, and where where it best to be operating. Um, and so, there's a group that decide to elect a guy um, who would rule from Rome. But then another group of cardinals thought that he was an unsuitable candidate. And that group grow in number. And they said, no, no, we need, we need a true pope unlike this other guy. And we're going to just do the whole second pope in France thing. Mm -hmm. And so again, once again, you kind of have, you kind of have the one side saying this is the true pope because he's in the right place. And then you have another group saying, no, this is the true pope because he's got the right pedigree or he's got the right background or the right character. Right. Right. And so it actually causes military conflict. It splits Europe. Right. Like, who's the real St. Peter? Who's it going to be? Who's the who's who's will the real St. Peter please stand up? Right. (laughs) So. (laughs) So you have you have Clement, who is in France and you have an urban. I think he's like the sixth urban or whatever, but urban in Rome. And so with Clement, you have France. Surprise, surprise. France is aligned with. Sure. The the Pope in their backyard. The Pope who's locally there. And also Scotland. Because they were allied with France, England, and a bunch of other places, Northern Europe in general, is with Urban. Why? Because they hate France. Because not he's be- not French. Because he's not French. That's the re- that's reason <laughs> that's enough. Literally, it. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's exactly it. Germany is torn to bits, as we'll see Germany torn to bits over theological differences in the future and throughout the Reformation. And smaller kingdoms, they flip-flop. Italy itself is split city to city. And and this this split and this division is going to continue after both these popes die for multiple generations of popes. And, you know, the Roman popes would try to appear as those who are seeking to end the conflict, but it's just, it was just a mess. And so it's just so interesting that, like, you know, we, we read about history, medieval history, and we read about, you know, these events going and how influential the church was in wars and different developments going on. But that for like, for a significant amount of time, there are two popes. So Mm -hmm. if you, you know, you're watching like a historical fiction drama that's set at this time period and there's a reference to the pope, which one? Right. Right. And if it's a French king, he's talking about a different person than the English king. Yeah. Right. And so it's just it's just a neat, neat thing to consider. But this is all you know, this this continues for a significant amount of time. Um, but there's one maybe shining, shining star 
we'll call maybe a, a what's the first is it the morning star that's like the early one yeah 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 yeah, he's kind of like the first little. You got to be careful with glimmer that. of hope. Yeah, the morning star because that's Christ imagery. But yeah, and and, I do that. and sometimes even Satan imagery, right? The mm. morning star. Yeah, then I guess it depends so, on your perspective. So I mean, I, the Catholic Church. Let's take it. Let's take a moment and work on scriptural interpretation here, because <laughs> I. So in school, yeah, when you're teaching in a classroom, one of the things that they tell you to watch out for are mm. teachable moments. Okay. Those moments where a student asks a question that maybe isn't exactly in line with what you're talking about, mm-hmm. but it causes everyone in the room to go, that's a good question. Yeah. And like, you know what, what? If you go back to your lesson, everyone's thinking about that. You might as well feed that hunger mm-hmm. right there. True. It's a teachable moment. Yeah. This is a teachable moment. Okay. Too many times people want to use biblical imagery and be like, this means this every time it's in the Bible. So whenever you see lion, mm. you should do a word study on the word lion. Right. And trace it all through scripture. Right. And it'll tell you about the lion of Judah. Right. And why God would call himself that. Till you get to John's <laughs> writings and he calls Satan a lion. Oh, yeah. Prowling lion. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeast. Yeast universally means sin and is wrong, except Jesus himself teaches that kingdom of heaven is like yeast and yep. bread. Yep. Um, images in scripture, names and descriptions mm-hmm. are subject to their context. Right. And are not universal threads of code mm-hmm. running through scripture. Yeah. That's just a, that one's free for yeah. you right there. A little side note, <laughs> little go. bonus lesson. There you go. Uh, just in case anyone gets too upset about the Morning Star reference, there you go. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for getting me out of that one. Um, so th- this individual's name is John Wycliffe. And John was born sometime in the 1320s. He studied at Oxford University, which had already been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, as a young man, um, he was very influenced by Augustine's writing. And he was very influenced by the Black Death. Just the reality of the plague growing up in that environment it is a sobering thing oh yeah like we'll be impacted by covid and covid might have might take one in a hundred right or one in i don't know what the stats are but imagine if it took one in three and that's not people who got it that's people period that's people right that's a third of of europe yeah and and in the same way at the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020 Mm -hmm. john piper wrote a book about how it is that we were to enter into a pandemic and receive it. Right. Uh, and his point was, don't waste it. Don't mm-hmm. waste the lessons mm-hmm. and that we have in this. Lessons of understanding our humility, mm-hmm. our limitations, that, that we as people are not invincible, and that we as a society mm-hmm. are not invincible. Yeah, yeah. Um, so those things are things that should be of influence. Mm-hmm. And, and I think because you, you mentioned... Wycliffe, as someone who is a, a bit of a morning star, right? The, that, that first dawn of light. And, mm-hmm. and I think people would say, well, what about Aquinas? Mm-hmm. Haven't you spent some time on Aquinas? You spent some time on a couple of people all sure. through the last episodes. What makes sure. Wycliffe different? Mm. And I would say Aquinas is very popular in Catholic thought. Mm-hmm. He is very popular in secular thought. Mm-hmm. 
Um, John Wycliffe transcends that. Yeah. And even steps out of that and, and becomes a forerunner of Reformation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So so maybe maybe whereas the if we were two Catholics doing this podcast, we would hold Wycliffe in high regard, mm. but not to the degree that we are now holding it. Oh no. We might have flipped that and we might have given all the emphasis on Aquinas. Yeah. And made mention of Wycliffe. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, if we were if we were devout Roman Catholics, we probably wouldn't be speaking positively of John Wycliffe. Except that Catholics historians tend to sort of rewrite history in a way that everyone was kind of on their side. I have to find one and ask him his opinion. <laughs> uh, tell you this, Catholics at the time weren't a big fan of him. No, they weren't. Um, so he also, as so here's the thing: we mentioned that he was he was impacted by you know living through the Black Plague. He did see it as God's judgment, but he saw it differently. He didn't see it as God's judgment against the peoples of Europe, but he saw it as judgment specifically on the clergy. Um, and so he believed that a reckoning was nigh. So he might have been of the opinion that the, the return of Christ was imminent. There's some in, you know instances in his writing, but I mean, everyone's always thought that forever. and mm-hmm. It is what it is. But he rises up through the ranks within the university. He wasn't um, wasn't a monk, um, but he was a student, and so he becomes the warden of Canterbury Hall, which is a part of the University of Oxford, where they were preparing young men for the ministry. But when a new Archbishop of Canterbury, who is that the the head, the de facto head of the church in in Britain, comes to power, he decides to relieve. Wycliffe of his job and give it to a monk and Wycliffe goes petitions to Rome over this and uh, they deny his petition and this speaks to a rivalry that was beginning within the university culture at this time because you had quote-unquote secular teachers I mean they were all essentially believers but you had non-clergy professors and then you had monks right and there was rivalry between it and so the the clergy in particular, they're like, well, we are specially ordained by God. We are different. We are more equipped to do this, right, than, than anyone else is. And, and who is anyone else to, to teach us anything? Um, and so, anyway, so he kind of loses his job. He kind of gets shuffled around. Uh, but at this point, he begins to decide translating the Bible into English. Now, Wycliffe is celebrated as being the first one to translate the Bible into English. He doesn't do the whole thing, mm-hmm. and he's technically not the first one to do it. He's the first one to do it in a long time. Right. Alfred the Great in the 900s yep. was translating parts of the Bible into English to because he wanted his people to be able to read it for themselves. And he wanted to. He actually learned to read so that he could do some of the work himself, which was, again, we might have mentioned this, but it was strange at the time because usually nobility had no bit, no concern with, with reading. Um so, but he does kind of take this task on anew, which is, I mean, considered problematic. You don't, you don't do that at this time in history. Right. At this point, we're dealing with issues of sacred language in the mm-hmm. church. Yeah. Right. All of a sudden, and and I think Wycliffe opens up a really interesting study. I I, I don't want to close the door of thought on this because it's easy to say that the Catholics created for themselves an echo chamber Mm. and 
church was practiced in an unknown language. Mm. And they held reins then on knowledge of scripture, access to worship, those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. by holding reins on the language. Um, Because, well, people don't speak Latin anywhere at this point, Mm. right? It's a... It's a dead language outside of the church. Mm. Um, arguably, even some of the priests doing the services don't speak Latin. <laughs> they can say Latin. But they can say <laughs> Latin. <laughs> That's a good point. So the question is, at what point are we best served by keeping fences around our study and who can study and who's let out to teach those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We do ordinations yeah. for those kinds of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have seminaries specific to our uh, branches of, of theology. Mm-hmm. And at what point is outside influence something that keeps us out of, um, keeps us not not always chasing the next idea but but does expose to us where we're limited mm. and where we may be wrong right um and and Wycliffe is a product of that whole or his outcome is a product of that whole like no we're going to we're going to squeeze the fence tighter mm-hmm. and you have to be of a certain order to be able to teach anything here right 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 but at the same time not entirely wrong right and and so it I think it's a good study on at, at what point do you open the gates mm-hmm. and where do you close them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I find it just interesting the uh, the obsession at this time with insisting on the Latin use of the Bible. Absolutely. When the Bible was first translated into Latin, Jerome did that. It was called the Vulgate because right. what he was doing was taking Greek, although it had been the dominant spoken language for a while, was f- falling out of fashion as we get into like 4th, 5th century. And so he then translated it into the vulgar language, the common language of the people, mm-hmm. right? That was its per- That's why it was in Latin. Right. And so you could argue that, that uh, Wycliffe is just following in those, in those steps. And if you, want, if you wanted to argue for divine language, not that I'm making that argument, but if you wanted to, it wouldn't be Latin, it would be Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Right. Here's a question for you. Okay. A spicy question for oh, you. Okay. What about people who insist the Bible be read in Middle English? <laughs> because of the divine interpretations of 1611. Yeah. No. Right? No. Is it is it a similar thing? People are like there is one translation and it's oh, the King James version I see what you're saying. and nothing else. Yeah. Whereas the King James version mm-hmm. was what is happening here with Wycliffe. Yeah. A means of updating because English, for all of nerddom, English shifts greatly. It does. And a lot of times people like to look at things like Shakespeare and be like, oh, that's Old English. No. Or the King James Bible, like, oh, that's Old English. No. Old English cannot be read by English speakers. Yeah. It's more Norwegian <laughs> and Germanic than anything else. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. it literally cannot be read. You won't even understand the lettering. Yeah. Um, the alphabet is different. Yeah. It is an entirely other thing. Mm-hmm. And so these things, this is what we're getting from Wycliffe. Mm -hmm. That kind of very ancient English, Mm -hmm. we can't pick up Wycliffe's Bible and just read it in church and make sense of it. He's kind of in the, he's kind of, 
it's it's the transition between right. old and middle. So like it would be more more recognizable than what King Alfred did in the 900s, right. but it's still you're not going to yeah, you're not going to pick it up for Bible study. No. By any stretch. And so a few hundred years later, like you said, the King James Bible and the argument there is, you know, this was the one, the authorized version. And there's whatever. no reason yeah, to uh to update the language yeah. in that. Yeah. Here's here's my take on, on on the whole the King James only or King James superior question. So one to to say like no 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 it's good enough and we're talking about something that was 400 years ago. Well first off, the King James has had updates. Yep. Minor King James w- itself. Yeah, has yeah. had updates. Um and and I think it's fine if if the purpose is to have a translation that is accessible for for people then then it, the argument that it shouldn't be updated or changed is ridiculous. The I say only, we do a whole episode on the King James we, Bible. We can. And here's a little preview to the one, and I disagree with this argument, but the one maybe viable argument for the King James Ooh. is the different, is there a, it's a different approach to how you handle the manuscripts of the originals. Mm. So the King James uses a particular group of manuscripts that were technically allegedly whatever static whereas the newer translations niv esv use newer things that are being discovered and prioritizes the older ones and prioritizes the ones that are are that seem to be less distinct right so that is i'll give them that i still disagree with that argument but that's a better argument than old-fashioned english is better than new english I, I don't agree with that argument is viable. Okay. Well, we let's talk about it in our We'll talk about it in another yeah. one, yeah. I don't agree with it. I just yeah. I hear that argument as like I can I can discuss I can interact with someone who's coming from that position. Okay. In the as not just dismissing them as being foolish. Right. Right? So that's that's what I would say in that. Yeah. I think it's foolish to say I have this book and if it's not in this book, then it doesn't exist and when you say well, we found other Bibles that are older than that one mm-hmm. that are in original language. You're like, nope, don't care. Yeah. I think that's foolish. Yeah. No, that's I, just my take. Fair enough. Like I said, we're chasing a rabbit. We, we got a whole other episode on that to do. Yeah. Yeah. So, finishing up, kind of talking a little bit more about Tyndale. So, he begins getting involved in the political realm, which again. Tyndale Wycliffe. Sorry? Wycliffe. Wycliffe. You said Tyndale. Oh, not Tyndale. Sorry, everyone. Getting ahead of myself. <laughs> that's like in a week or two. Um, so Wycliffe, Wycliffe begins getting involved in, uh, in politics a little bit. And he essentially just says that the church needs to just give up its properties, hand them over to the nobility, get rid of all these, these income sources that you're leaning on. Um, obviously he was unsurprisingly condemned for these views by a synod formed completely for the purpose of talking about why he's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's literally they they had a big old meeting just to talk about how wrong he was. Um and so yeah, he he faces charges and uh he just doesn't really care. Um he kind of just keeps doing what he's doing. Um he also opposed the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um which again was a target which the Roman Catholic hierarchy saw as an attack against their validity because Remember, transubstantiation being the belief that the body and bread become the literal body and blood um, of Christ, right? So if they are the dispensers of the tangible and true Christ, 
then they hold a lot of sway and influence. And if they can withhold that from people, right. they're withholding Christ from people. It's so, We talked about this last year mm-hmm. in the podcast about the difference between the Lord's Supper as a, a sacrament right. or an ordinance. Mm-hmm. Is it a ceremony or is it an, an actual dispensation of grace? Mm-hmm. And since they see this as a sacrament, as an actual I'm handing you grace literally in the form of bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's there comes with that authority to withhold and and your salvation hangs in the balance of your favor with the priest and not your favor with God. Right. And that gets flexed in increasing ways. That, that's what we were referring to when we were talking about armies formed by the church for fear of the salvation of the whole kingdom. Right. And, and kings that are persuaded to send all of their fighting-age men into various kinds of crusade is mm-hmm. over that particular, we will withhold from all of your people their salvation mm-hmm. by grace through the sacrament. And, I mean, pretty soon they're just going to run out of those kinds of wars and just start selling them for cash. But, <laughs> uh, again, that's yeah. getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, so... Partly, so Wycliffe is is very influential amongst the common people, and and there's actually a peasants' revolt. Now Wycliffe was not in favor of this revolt, but people were pretty fired up about the situation, the abuses coming from the church and the nobility at that time, and some of those who were really keen on his teachings actually used it to justify murdering a guy named Simon Sudbury, who happened to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. Again, Wycliffe was not advocating for that but people were pretty fired up and pretty convinced that the church hierarchy was needed to be done away with um he's again summoned to oxford university and his teachings are further condemned so i mean i don't know they just keep they just kind of keep telling you get one more chance and then he just he just keeps doing what he's doing um and in turn so he he just says essentially that the entire hierarchy of the church should just completely be done away with Mm-hmm. Just do away with it all. Churches should be led by priests who live simply, who weren't bound by any oaths to Rome, and who preach the gospel to the people. And this group of preachers that he advocates for, and which kind of emerge, become known as the Lollards, which the translation from that kind of from the the old language is you you call them the mumblers or the murmurers or whatever. Um, and they proposed some. Again, some beliefs that we're going to find familiar. There's a form of sola scriptura. If, if there's not evidence for it in the Bible, why are we believing it? Why are we advocating it? Baptism wasn't necessary for salvation. It was good and to be done, but not necessary for salvation. Praying to saints was idolatry. They demanded that the scriptures should be accessible in English. They opposed the practice of confession to priests because they believed in a form of universal priesthood of believers. The, the priests couldn't forgive your sins. Only Christ could do that. They challenged the requirement of celibacy for the priesthood. And they rejected kind of the selling of, of positions within the church and, and, and you know, making the in, kind of early form of indulgences, which haven't really become super popular yet, but we'll, we'll see that soon. These are, again, just a, what we call a proto-Protestant group. And not only sola scripture, but also sola fide. Yes. Your faith in Christ alone mm-hmm. is su- sufficient. Yes. For salvation. Yeah. Which is a part of that baptism is not regenerative. Mm-hmm. Baptism is 
ceremonial mm-hmm. kind of an argument. It's a matter of obedience, not... And, and this is where, ironically, I, I know you said earlier you'd need to find a historian who would have any means of bringing Wycliffe in on, on Catholic history in a positive oh, okay. light. Yeah. Here, he, ironically, I think these statements would be that, hmm. even though they're very anti-Catholic. And the reason is, inside of Catholic history, there is often a push to say, what happened with Martin Luther wasn't that big of a deal. There had already been internal Reformation movements. Right. And there were a number of people who saw need for this internal Reformation. And these things have been rised up, raised up and, and unfortunately, in some instances, pushed down. Some of them went too far, those kinds of things. But this, they might argue, whereas we would say proto-Protestant, they would say, this is the reason we don't need the Protestant Reformation, because there were right. already internal struggles with the wrongs that were being committed. Yeah. Although we don't at any point in history really see the Catholic Church struggle with those wrongs <laughs> in the way that they should have, apart yeah. from the Protestant Reformation. But that's that's where I think someone might try to draw a false mm-hmm. connection and, yeah. and positive Catholic light on it. So Wycliffe ends up dying a couple years after this, and it's actually while he is... Well, he has a stroke while he's leading a service, a church service in 1384, and a few days later, he passes away. And while he had been a subject of a lot of controversy during his life, he had never really had a significant and serious punishment laid on him. He kind of just continued to operate behind the scenes. He was, you know, not a a friend of the church, but it's actually 20 years later, 20 years after his death, that he would be posthumously declared a heretic. His writings would be banned. They exhume his body, they dig it up, they burn it, and they scatter his ashes in the river. Because in their mind, that's going to prevent him from being resurrected one day. Yeah, which is a fascinating limitation on God. (laughs) What about the martyrs who died that they would celebrate? The martyrs that they would celebrate who died in the same fashion. Yeah, That is... That is just needing to get the last word. Right. I, I think you might even call it mercy that God would take him mm. before he would be punished and tortured by the church for the good work that he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just, it's petty. It is. It's petty and it's small and it's unfortunate. Yeah. And. It's not the end of the pettiness, unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, and is produced by Alex Walker. See you later. See you.